Welcome to Vision Drip, a podcast designed to give you a steady drip of our vision, mission, and DNA to establish and refine the gospel culture at Sacred City Church. I'm your host, Pastor Sam Schmidt, church planter and pastor of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. I am so excited to have you with me as I hope this podcast helps to equip you as a disciple of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life as we set out to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Not only do I hope that this podcast helps you grow, but it would grow your affections for Jesus. So let's dive into this episode of Sacred City Vision Drill. Hope you're having a great week so far. We're off to a great start over here. Um, I've been thinking, uh, if you've been around the last handful of weeks, you may have noticed um, kind of a, a newfound emphasis on joy. Um, I, I've been feeling it personally. Actually, I can trace this back to um, a fight club that we had probably three months ago. We've been reading through Gospel Center Discipleship, and we came to a, a passage or you know a chapter that was talking about the joy of the Christian, sort of being the 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 driving force um, behind our sanctification. And what I've been talking about is, is the driving force behind mission. Um, the last couple of weeks, and um, I. I owe a lot of this to uh, my friend. I think I may have even mentioned his name before. Uh, my friend Cole Dykey, who's actually a friend of mine who was, um, he went to college with me at UNI back back in the day, um, has since gone on to also plant a church in the greater Des Moines area. Actually, I mean, it's right in Des Moines. Um, but one of the things that you may not realize is my friend Cole Dykey uh, was, he, he came to, to, to the Quad Cities a couple weekends ago and uh, he filled the pulpit over at Sacred City Davenport, and I just got done listening to his sermon, and it was about it was it was through uh, on on Psalm one hundred um, that, that commands us to sing to the Lord uh, a joyful song, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And I gotta tell you what, I was just blown away, um, so much so that I'm like, I gotta, I gotta. I got to come out with a, a podcast like this, or I got to, I got to do something, um, in this vein and steal all of his good ideas. And, and what I, I by the time I got to the end of the sermon, uh, I had been moved, uh, so many times. It's like, I, I can't, I can't recreate this. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play this sermon for you. And I hope you hang in there for the whole thing, but because man, it was, it was a powerful sermon. Um, I, I, I text him as I was listening to this, I would have paid money to be in the room while he's preaching it. Cause as I'm sitting behind a, a computer screen, watching the video, I just can't help but feel, uh, the power of the spirit. And so to be in the room for that would have been incredible. Um, and so I want to share this with you, uh, cause I think he's got a prophetic word for us in this. Uh, I think it's a sharp word that, that cuts to the heart and, and really, um, calls us to a, a greater joy. And so, uh, without further ado, I'm going to just turn you over. And I might be breaking some sort of copyright laws here, but I'm pretty sure the people at Sacred City and Davenport are going to be cool with this. So um, I hope you enjoy the sermon uh, on Psalm 100 by my good friend and pastor, Cole Dykey. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. 
Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, ben, thank Ben. Ben, where you at? Um, thank you. Uh, high bar. I can't, I can't believe that, you know, when I think back to our time together as friends, I primarily see Ben as demonstrating a lot of patience towards me. And so where, where he says, you know, I, I don't know where he got that from, but I feel like it, it's, it's Ben who's re- responsible for me being up here. So um, I, I really am just excited to be here, guys. I'm going to tell you what I told the volunteers this morning. Actually, this is great. It is it's so wonderful to be at another church who has a short lead pastor too. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm so used to like when I go to other preachers, like up here, but no, it's, it's right here. And another lead pastor who is also a wrestler. So I don't have to justify my excitement and my enthusiasm to you. You guys get it. Um, so let me tell you what I, I told the volunteers this morning. Um, I, I, I know that we don't know each other very well, and, and you, a lot of you don't even know who I am, but I'm such a huge fan of this church. I mean this when I say this. I'm all the way over in Des Moines church planting, but I have such a huge church crush on Sacred City. And you need to believe me when I say that. I've learned so much from Sacred City. We're a part of Acts 29-2 over at Frontier in Des Moines. And so on a monthly basis, I'm learning from Justin, learning from Sam, being refreshed by their presence. And I got I, like, I to be honest, it's been a little bit of a complex uh, relationship with Sacred City because when I graduated from college, all of my friends went here to plant this church. I was like, oh man, they're going, oh, all my boys are going there. And uh, so you put a hole in my heart. <laughs> no, what you did, uh, what you did is you taught me at a crucial moment in my life that young men um, can make an impact on the world through the local church. And that in, in no small part was a piece of what God used to call me to plant Frontier Church in in Des Moines, Iowa. So I I really mean this. When I say this, I'm grateful for you guys. You have a good church. This is rare. You have a good church. If you got your Bibles, open to uh, Psalm 100. I'm going to pray and um, got a lot to do. So I'll start with praying. Heavenly Father, in your presence, There is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The world wants us to believe that joy is impossible. They want us to buy into unrelenting cynicism. They want us to hide behind irony. And we stand here together and we gather underneath the throne of God as his kingdom people and we believe that joy is possible. So Lord, would you meet us this morning? 
Would you pour out the joy that you pray for? Would you help us taste of the banquet that's to come? Give us a bite of the bread of life. Give us a drink of living waters and focus us on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in some small measure, if even one person in this church leaves with a little bit more joy in Jesus, then the drive was worth it. So it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray all these things and all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, so over the next 40 minutes, we've, uh, it's, it's going to be busy. We've got some ground to cover uh, together. I, what I plan to do over the next 40 minutes is I plan to share an embarrassing moment that I had watching the Food Network. I plan to tackle five different obstacles that get in the way of us participating in worship with fullness of joy. I want to explain what we call gospel-centered lungs at Frontier Church in Des Moines. We've got to take a quick peek at how Rome would worship Caesar with joyful noise. And I think if I've got time for it, I'll even share a quick story of my random roommate from my freshman year of college who's a guy you might know. And we're going to do all of this in order to understand Psalm 100 more deeply, specifically that potent little phrase, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Sound good? And so we, we got to start with my embarrassing story of watching the Food Network, okay? I'm not a Food Network guy. Those people can make anything look good. It's ridiculous. But one thing that you've got to know uh, about me is that for a 33-year-old, I still eat like a child. It's embarrassing, okay? Yeah, I know, I know that you guys are a pretty fit church, and so this is kind of embarrassing to say, but you should know that I'm basically, when it comes to my diet, I'm like a, I'm a, I'm a carnivorous sweet tooth, Okay? Um, it, you know, one way to demonstrate this would be part of Sacred City's gift package for me coming to preach to you involved a bag of gummy bears and a bunch of chocolate. And I saw that and I thought, these people get me. <laughs> they get me. And I'm getting better, you know, ever since being married to my wife, Chloe, I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. But left to myself, my food pyramid is primarily Sour Patch Kids and steak. <laughs> but I... Ha I I had a moment once, a couple years ago, when I wanted to eat healthy, and I wanted to make a change to my diet. I was flipping through the television, and I accidentally landed on Food Network. And again, these people can, they can make anything look good. The lady on the show was in the middle of making a vegetable stew. She put the, she put the veggies in the pan, and this is where she hooked me. Once she put the veggies in the pan, she sprinkled a little salt in the pan. And she said, what this salt is going to do is it's going to draw the juices and the flavor out of this vegetable stew. And I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat. And I'm like, I want vegetables. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I want vegetables. And after she had sprinkled a little bit of salt, she got some oregano out. She poured the oregano in. And as she was pouring in the oregano, she said, it's a lemony and earthy spice. And it, is it a spice? Yeah? Uh, herb. It's a lemony, it's a lemony, earthy herb. And what this is going to do is this is going to give this, this dish a little bit of a rustic taste. And guys, I'm on the edge of my seat. A carnivorous sweet tooth like me on the edge of my seat. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I can't believe this, but I need to make some vegetable stew. And so what do you think I did? I, I got up off my couch 
I went to my car and I drove to the nearest healthy grocery store. Are you with me? I got up off my couch. I got into my car and I drove to the nearest healthy grocery store to me. And then I drove right past it. And I went to Burger King. And to my great shame, I slammed a Whopper. Epic fail. And as I'm sitting there in my car, eating a Whopper, shame eating, I have this light bulb moment. There's a profound difference between knowing what you ought to feast on and what you're actually hungry for. Is this you this morning? Crystal clear what our spiritual diet should be. Jesus Christ is the fullness of joy. Jesus Christ is our pleasures forevermore. Jesus Christ is the living waters that quenches our thirst. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And so the scriptures are unbelievably clear about what the content of our spiritual diet ought to be. Jesus, 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 but perhaps you're like me. So often, though you know you should hunger for Jesus, often when the rubber hits the road, you drive right past him and you stuff your soul with the world instead. You know that Jesus is satisfying, but often you drive right past him and you stuff yourself on the fast food of idolatry. And if that's you, I have one goal this morning to treat you to compel you to not treat church like the food network. You're not here to just watch your leaders feast on Jesus. You're not here to just watch me feast on Jesus behind the word. You're not here to just fe- you're not here to watch Joel feast on Jesus as he leads us in worship. You're here to feast. So when we come to church, we roll up our sleeves. We get the fork out, we get the spoon out, and we stuff our face with the joy of Jesus. And if you get that, then Psalm 100 comes naturally. Psalm 100, here's the, I know we already read it. I'm going to read through it once more again, though. Um, the beautiful thing about this psalm is that like, uh, as, uh, it's, it's going to be kind of awkward because as I exhort you to do this, my experience with you this morning has been, we're already doing that. And so this is really cool. I get to actually tell you to do what God is already doing through you. So check this out. Psalm um, 100, four different stanzas, four different portraits on the wall, and they all add up to the same picture. The psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. This is a picture of God as king and his kingdom surrounding him and offering joyful noise to him. Stanza two, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So this is a stanza about God as shepherd. Wait, is it God as king or is it God as shepherd? Yes. You know anybody like that? It's totally about Jesus. Stanza three. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. This is a picture of corporate worship. The people of God gathering together to do something particular in the world. Stanza four, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all 
generation. Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is a, it's a fan favorite because it's short, right? I like, it kind of feels like me. It's short and spunky. I kind of, it's easy to read. Most of Psalm 100 is, it's commands, right? There's actually more commands in Psalm 100 than verses. There's only five verses, but there's seven commands. Five, seven, like me, on a good day. Seven commands, <laughs> five verses. <laughs> this is what the seven commands feel like, machine gun style. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that he's God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Give thanks to him. Bless him. If you reduce them to mostly your verbs, you kind of get the feeling of the psalm. It feels like this. Make noise. Serve. Sing. Know. Praise. Bless. There's actually more exclamation points in Psalm 100 than there are verses. That's pretty dope, right? And though this is, it's appropriate to apply this to all of life, um, but we should notice that it's a psalm that's primarily about corporate worship. It's primarily instructions for how to worship God for when we gather together in the church. And this is where I, I think uh, modern people get a little touchy, is that the Bible actually tells us how to worship and not just what to worship. And we know this is the case because verse 2 talks about, quote, coming into his presence, which is Old Testament language about coming into the temple. And as if that's not clear enough, verse 4 makes it explicit by referencing God's people coming into his courts and his gates with singing. And so these are corporate worship instructions. And you, don't, you just don't need a seminary degree to see what the main point of Psalm 100 is. God demands to be worshipped, as verse 1 says, with joyful noise. And at one level, that's super like simple, right? Got it. Let's pray. Don't ruin our lunch plans. Just make a joyful noise. But there's actually a different level that as we peel that back, it's going to give us a little bit more of an explicit image of what should be going on in our minds and hearts as we worship. It would help to know that the phrase make a joyful noise actually has a general meaning and a narrow meaning. And knowing both of these meanings will furnish our imagination with an appropriate worshiping imagination. Let's talk about a general level. At, in a general level, you get the gist of what God demands when he demands that we make a joyful noise. At a general level, it's just a junk drawer phrase that represents all the different ways that God demands to be worshiped in all 150 psalms. If you kind of do a sample throughout the psalms, God demands that we worship him with loud noises. Praises, crashing cymbals, trumpets, loud singing, pleasure, joyous noise, giving thanks with a trumpet, harp, strings, pipe. In other words, the phrase make a joyful noise is actually an external, not just an internal response to God. Well, I make a joyful noise to the Lord in my heart. That's great. That's actually just not what Psalm 100 is about, though. And so as we narrow our meaning down from a general to a narrow meaning, we start to see more about what exactly God is demanding us to do because it has a more culturally specific meaning that, again, is going to furnish your mind with an appropriate worshiping imagination. That phrase, joyful noise, is small, but it's explosive because in the ancient world, this phrase was not first and foremost a religious phrase. It was political. And, 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 and the bearing it had in the ancient world was it almost always referred to the exuberant fanfare that you would give to your king when enthroning him. So, for instance, 
in the ancient world, what the Romans would do is they would demonstrate their allegiance and their loyalty to King Caesar with loud noises of praise, with joyful noise. They would demonstrate their allegiance to King Caesar with exuberant fanfare. They would surround their king with joyful noises. It's not hard for us to imagine the Romans surrounding King Caesar with Caesar, 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 all these loud noises. And in fact, and this is important, not to celebrate the enthroning of King Caesar in a way that was public and visible would have been considered an act of treason. You get that? When you get that, when you see the bearing that this has in the ancient world, when you get that, you begin to understand what God demands of you when he demands you to worship him with a joyful noise as a church. What we're doing here is we're coming together as the kingdom people of God and we are enthroning Christ Jesus on our hearts. And to do that, to demonstrate that to the world, we're making a joyful noise to him as our supreme king over the cosmos. It turns out that, you know, whatever you think is a postmodern person, that Sunday mornings aren't just a personal spiritual experience. And so here's the deal. When we start to furnish the imagination with the throne of God, the kingdom of God, we're getting super close to the red hot, sermer, red hot center of the sermon this morning. So what we need to do is we need to roll up our sleeves and get as practical as possible about Psalm 100. Because at one level, it's just like, bro, I get it. Make loud noises. Sing. And there's like this other level where it's hard to do this. Maybe you're like me. You find yourself at the corporate gathering on Sunday mornings. You're at church and the preaching of the gospel fills you with this glorious joy so that it feels like joy is pouring out of your ears and the Holy Spirit strikes you with a delight that feels like a lightning bolt to the heart and the time comes to sing to the Lord with a joyful noise and worship and you stand ready to roar and you open your mouth and a squeak comes out. It's like there's this wall between us and our participation with God as king, with fullness of joy. And what I want to do is I want to identify this wall and exactly how we tear it down. So we're going to walk through five ingredients that constitute this wall, this wall that stands between you and worshiping with fullness of joy. Five different ways to tear down this wall. And as we do, my prayer is that you pick up a sledgehammer and that we tear this wall down together in the pursuit of white-hot, joy-filled, God-centered worship. First, in order to worship the Lord with joyful noise, we must tear down our secular imaginations. Let me unpack this. The inner workings of most of our imaginations and what goes on in our mind has primarily been shaped by the secular world in such a way that most of us probably approach worship with an empty head. And if not an empty head, and if not an empty imagination, then at least a very watered-down imagination. I don't know if you're like me, and your refrigerator has been taken over by LaCroix. Any LaCroix fans out there? 
Okay, I was, I was not a believer when the LaCroix phrase, like, like when, the, when the phase first started. I was like, it's just watered down, sparkling water that barely even has a hint of flavor in it. I didn't like LaCroix at first. I don't know what happened, but now my refrigerator is just, it's full of LaCroix, guys. It's a, it's a problem. We got LaCroix in there all the time. I had one friend who made fun of me by calling me a LaCroix boy. I was like, I don't, I, don't even, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds derogatory, so ouch. But they made fun of me by telling me, somebody once told me that um, LaCroix tastes like reusing a Gatorade bottle that you didn't wash first. <laughs> uh, it, uh, somebody else told me it tastes like sparkling water driving by a fruit stand. <laughs> uh, and... So much of what passes for biblical Christianity is, it's actually just LaCroixianity. It's vague spirituality with barely a hint of Jesus in it. Vague religion with barely a hint of Jesus. And this creates a watered-down faith, and this watered-down faith, it shows itself in how we worship on Sundays. But this is not the case with the psalmists. When you read Psalm 100, you get this kingly imagination, this worshiping imagination that the psalmist brings to worship. You can almost imagine that when God's people gathered together in worship, they had this picture of God being enthroned above them in praise. They had this picture of the angels singing praises to God. They had this picture of the seraphim right? Fawning head over heels for God at the foot of his throne. And this was their worshiping imagination. If you could, if you could go and find an Israelite in the temple in the midst of worship and you could crack their head open or you could do an MRI on what's going on inside of their mind, their mind would have been filled with a picture of God being enthroned above them. It was their worshiping imagination. And um, this is important because if you come to worship with an empty head, rather than a worshiping imagination. If you come to worship with an empty head like the secular world wants you to, there are consequences. What you do with your imagination in corporate worship, it's not private. It's actually deeply consequential to the rest of the body because if you refuse to fill your imagination with the enthroning of God as king, you're gonna be the guy who thinks, oh, that's the wrong slide. Everybody can feel that, right? If you come to church with an empty imagination, you'll be the guy who's like, oh, I could have said that better. Or worse, you'll be the guy who spaces out for the entire worship service. And so I've got to speak frankly right here, and I don't mean to unnecessarily pick on the fellas, but let's pick on the fellas really quickly. And I want to pick on the fellas because I think that corporate singing is primarily a masculine crisis. Ladies, you're, you're knocking it out of the park. Dudes, I'm just going to be direct here. Nothing wounds a church more than lukewarm men. Nothing wounds a church more than a bro who is dragged to church by his wife and family. You yawn in the face of the gospel. You check your phone during worship. You roll your eyes at the preaching of God's word. It sends a chill throughout the whole church. Here's the way that John Piper describes this crisis, specifically in its relationship with the kids in the church. He says, quote, 
the greatest stumbling block to children worshiping with white-hot joy when they grow up, the biggest stumbling block is parents who do not cherish their own worship. They don't love it. And children can feel the difference between duty and delight. And they know whether or not dad loves being here. A lukewarm man sends a chill throughout the whole church. A lukewarm man sends a chill throughout the entire family. The city is watching you, and they want to know what you really enjoy. Your kids are watching you. And they want to know, what does dad really rejoice in? I've seen him in front of a football game. And when he comes to church, he mumbles along with his hands in his pocket. And who is the shadow of a man I see at home? So it's actually pretty imperative that you furnish your mind with an appropriate worshiping imagination, precisely with the biblical imagery of God as king, as sovereign ruler and reigner over the cosmos. And, and if you don't know where to start with this, meditate on Ezekiel, Isaiah, or Revelation's throne room visions of God, but don't show up empty-headed. You gotta be able to see past Joel when he leads us in worship. You gotta be able to see past Justin when he leads us in worship. As excellent as those men are at their vocations, you must see beyond the shadows of earthly worship and peer into the reality of heavenly participation of God as king. This is a game changer. And my other four notes are a lot, they're, they're a lot quicker. Okay, so don't worry. Um, so second, so first is, Tear down, tear down your secular imagination. The second thing we need to tear down to participate with white hot joy is we need to tear down our binary distinctions between joy and sorrow. Biblically, joy is a non-binary affection for God that is rooted not in any sort of circumstances that can be taken away, but is rooted in the soul satisfaction in who God is and what God has done for us. And that means, that means that biblical joy is deep enough and wide enough and rich enough and vast enough to actually coexist with the whole human experience. Sadness, sorrow, contrition, repentance, lament. Joy is big enough to get its arms around all of those affections when you bring them into the corporate gathering. And this is important because this is what makes biblical Christianity, <laughs> this is what makes biblical Christianity different than happy clappyanity. Everybody's been around happy clappyanity, and it drives us nuts. Amen? When God demands that you fight for joy in worship, he doesn't, mean that you, he doesn't mean that you pretend like everything's okay, and you plaster on a fake smile, and you mindlessly clap along. You should fight for joy, and you should clap. But we don't have to participate in happy clappyanity. And so... This is good news for those of you who uh, battle with depression and sickness because you need to know that depression and sickness are not actually opposite of biblical joy. Joy is not actually at odds with your sorrow. Joy, if you're a Christian, is actually what's at the bottom of your sorrow. In fact, if you struggle with depression, if you struggle with sorrow, your joy has a particular power in the presence of other believers. Particular power. Nothing has changed my life more in corporate worship than seeing my brother and elder Kent Young in Des Moines battle through cancer at age 62 and raise his hands in delight of the Lord. 
when you see that, changes you. So if you want to trash the kingdom of darkness, you cannot go around your sorrow. If you want to fight for joy, you cannot go around your pain. You've got to fight through the pain. And you've got to fight through the sadness in the fight for joy. Don't make a binary distinction that's inappropriate between joy and sorrow. Third, we need to tear down our unbiblical hierarchies of affection and truth. In worship, right theology and right affections are both of primary importance. And there is no hierarchy of, a, of importance. And you need to chill out, okay? Because though there's no hierarchy of importance, there is a hierarchy of authority. Truth must be authoritative over the affections and not vice versa. Right? And this is what makes biblical Christianity radically different. This is what makes biblical Christianity radically different from sugar Christianity. Because sugar Christianity is what takes place when we put the affections above truth and we lower the bar for truth in order to feel some good feelings. And what happens is what we do when we have a sugar crash. We get, we get together as Christians and we fill ourselves with sugar on Sunday mornings rather than theology, sugar rather than truth, sugar rather than gospel. And we run out into the world and we crash on Monday morning in our first temptation at work. It's sugar Christianity and not biblical Christianity. But likewise, we should probably also resist the temptation to say that affections don't matter lest we become Pharisees. Because you'll notice the challenge of Psalm 100 is that it doesn't actually tell you exactly what words to worship with. Psalm 100 is actually about the way that we worship, how we worship. It turns out that how we worship actually matters to God. And he demands to be worshipped with loud noises of joy. And this is precisely what the Puritans meant when they famously said, happiness differs from holiness only in spelling. Fourth, we got to tear down our unbiblical divisions between the body and the spirit. Some of us, uh, since we're Protestants in here, we, see our, we tend to see our bodies as unimportant in Sunday worship. The problem with this is the Bible Romans 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your body was God's idea. God created matter. Matter matters to God. And this means that you can and you should make practical preparations for Sunday worship to give God fullness of joy. Eat a good breakfast before church. Get eight hours of sleep on Saturday night. If you're apathetic in worship, if you're in an apathetic season, fast on Saturday nights, fast on Sunday mornings. Do what you gotta do in order to come in hungry for God. Um, former athletes, treat Saturday nights before church with as much intentionality as you treated the night before your football game or basketball games. And fifth, once we tear down our unbiblical division between the body and the spirit, fifth, we need to tear down your self-sovereign view of yourself in worship. Let me say that again. Tear down your self-sovereign view of yourself in worship. When you come to church on Sunday mornings, it's just really tempting to view your worship of God as initiating the relationship with God, isn't it? Right? Like, like you could make the first move on God. Like you've got the first word. It's really, it's really tempting. But 
If you do this, what you end up doing is you end up inserting yourself as the sovereign player in worship rather than understanding God as the sovereign player in worship. And this is probably the root of all heresy, right? If you get the first word, this is where it goes wrong. You think things like, well, if I just sing loud enough in worship, then God will love me. Wrong. God always gets the first word in worship. We always get the second word in worship. God has the first word. We always respond. We call this, we call this having gospel-centered lungs at Frontier Church in Des Moines. Gospel-centered lungs. We breathe in God's grace, and then we sing out God's praise in that order. First, we sing in God's grace, or we breathe in God's grace, and we sing out God's praise. Gospel-centered lungs because here's the gospel god already made the first move on you and that means that whatever you do say or sing in worship is always a response to what god has already did said or sung over you did you know that god sings over you Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. God is singing over you in Christ. Right now. first time I really believed this and really caught a glimpse of this was five years ago when we had our first child, Russell. I'm telling you, parents out there, when we had our first kid, I was like, I don't know if I ever knew anything about God before this. I mean, I did. Jesus saved me. But all of these realities just start to click into place when you're raising kids. And for that first couple weeks of having our first kid, nothing stood out to me more than the mornings. It would be quiet, I'd be, in, uh, I'd be in the kitchen or the living room studying. The whole house would be quiet. And then at 6 a.m., boom, Russell would wake up in his crib. Just all of a sudden fill the house with crying and wailing and screaming. And then I'd hear our bedroom door creak open. And my wife, Chloe, would tiptoe over into Russell's room. She would pick him up while Russell was crying. And what she would do where she would start to sing over Russell. And to me in the living room, it always sounded like a war. <laughs> Singing versus the wailing. Light versus darkness. Good news over bad news. Chloe versus Russell. It was an absolute war. Uh, song colliding with chaos and as the singing went on, uh, she would sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus in, in, those, in that season. And as the singing went on, something incredible would happen. Little by little by little, Russell's crying would get softer and softer and softer. And the wailing would eventually cease until it became mute. And eventually the singing would win. And there would be a smile that would spread across Russell's face. And the first couple times I remember hearing this in the other room, I had a light bulb moment where I thought, oh my goodness, 
This is precisely what God does for us. In this moment, whether or not I'm aware of it, it is an objective reality that even in my sorrow and sadness right now, God the Father sings over me. God peels back the darkness in our lives by singing over us. God smothers the flames of despair by singing over us. And we've got to be gospel-centered enough to believe that Christ was crucified to clothe us with his righteousness and atone for all of our sins to effectively make us into children of God. And as children of God, God has taken us out of our cribs, held us in his loving arms. And so right now, we always exist in a steady stream of God's singing. We exist in the loving gaze of God always. And when you comprehend God's delight in you, then you dare to believe that joy is possible. Not because I feel it right now, not because it's accessible to my heart right now, but because God demonstrates it over me. And when you feel God demonstrating his joy in you, you dare to believe that joy is possible. And we have to know this because Christ demands to be enjoyed. Amen? He demands to be enjoyed because joy is the organizing principle of your life. Whatever you enjoy, you obey. Joy is the strongest magnetic force in your life. What you enjoy most sucks in all of your thoughts, sucks in all of your willpower, sucks in all of your discipline. The functional Lord of your life is whatever you enjoy most. Christ demands to be enjoyed like that. And he demands to be enjoyed because, not just because joy is the organizing principle of our lives and that Our supreme joy dictates our decision-making. He demands to be enjoyed because joy makes you strong. Joy is where you get the power to obey him. Joy is where you get the power to glorify him. Joy is what allows you to run through a wall for Jesus. Those who have joy in Christ are those who have the strength to say no to sin, no to the world, no to idolatry for God. Like, it's not a cute phrase in the Bible when the Bible says that the, the, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That doesn't mean, wouldn't it be nice to feel good? It means what it says. It means that the joy of the Lord is your strength. It means that joy is the soul's protein. Christ demands to be enjoyed because your affections for him are designed to be a shadow of his affections for you and because you are covered in the righteousness of Christ and because your sins have been forgiven in Jesus, he rejoices over you. He's not putting up with you. He loves you. You know, right now in the cosmos, in the heavenly realm, he's got a foam finger with your name on it. He's got your name painted on his chest. He's a fan. He rejoices over you. And if you felt a fraction of the joy towards Christ, as Christ feels towards you, your jaw would hit the floor and you'd never pick it up. Be a string of drool coming out the corner of your heart's mouth always. Christ demands to be enjoyed because joy remakes you into the image of God. 
God's nature is eternal. God has no beginning. God has no end. Before the sparkle of a single star and before the creation of a single atom, there was joy. God the Father rejoicing in God the Son before anything was ever created. God the Son rejoicing in God the Spirit. God the Spirit rejoicing in God the Father. And so when you're swept into that triune dance and you rejoice in the risen and resurrected and ascended Jesus, you are participating in the divine nature. You're showing the world what God is like. You're imaging him to the world. You're making the invisible God visible by rejoicing in the God that God has always delighted in. And so my prayer for Sacred City is that you guys would be known in the Quad Cities as the city's most joyful people. Your city needs you to rejoice in Jesus. 14 years ago, the Lord used my random roommate's joy to lead me to Jesus. I'll never forget showing up to Bartlett Hall, room 167B in Cedar Falls, Iowa, opening the door and seeing this goofy bro looking at me when he opened the door. This goofy bro with a backwards cap and dyed curly blonde hair pouring out the back of it. I was like, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to be friends with this Alec Epkiss bro. <laughs> oh, you know him. And uh, over the, the, the course of that year, I just thought, man, this, this dude's got something. Um, he, he confused me because he actually prayed. He actually read his Bible. He shared Jesus with me. He confused me because he dragged me along to church, and when he dragged me along to church, he would roll down the windows and crank up the worship music in his car and sing out of the windows. He confused me because he confused me because before I met Alec, I always thought that there were two categories of people, fun people and religious people, and there were two separate categories. And Alec showed me that not only can you be a Christian and be joyful, but the only way to be joyful is to be a Christian. And you don't get to be around somebody's joy like that before it forces some pretty difficult questions on you, some pretty life-changing questions, questions like, what does this dude have that I don't have? How can I have that man's joy? And that's precisely the question that the Lord used to drive me to the cross of Christ. And so I'm not overstating things when I say that by the grace of God, I'm here because of the joy of Alec Epkis. By the grace of God, I'm a Christian because of the joy of Ben Mossback and all the different ways you were patient with me. Your joy is not a tertiary thing. The world is watching the way that you worship. They want to know what you really worship. Your city is watching you. Your kids are watching you. So my prayer is that this would be the city's most joyful church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is simply a matter of fact that you demand that we rejoice in you. But the good news of this is that you demand us to rejoice and you can demand us to rejoice because you distribute joy.
the one who demands it also distributes it. And so, Lord, right now in this moment, would you give us an appropriate worshiping imagination, a mind that sees Christ high and lifted up on the throne, a mind that sees the angels surrounding him with loud noises of praise, a mind that sees the seraphim fawning head over heels for Christ Jesus. And then may the Holy Spirit give us the power to step into the heavenly realm and do what all of creation will do for eternity. Rejoice in Jesus. So it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray all these things. All God's people said...